Welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you Stephen and let me give the audience just a very brief overview um, about you so um, so they get to know you a little bit. Um, so uh, Dr. Stephen Allison, he's a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology and Earth System Science at the University of California, Arvine, Arvine sorry. And um, he, I shared the lab website in the chat for people who would like to check it out um, also in the future. And um, he's a Bachelor of Science and by um, at the universe, at the Penn State University and then his uh, PhD at Stanford University. And um, later on, he worked also at the NOAA Climate and Global Change um, as a postdoc. Um, he was their postdoctoral scholar. And um, yeah, and um, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. And our first question usually is, when did you kind of discover that you have this affinity or passion for science and that you would want to make kind of a life career out of it? Was it something like a childhood dream or was there some class or maybe a trip to a museum? You know, whatever the, the story is, I think it's really interesting for people to learn. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Katerina. Thanks for inviting me to, to be here with, with you all today. Uh, yeah, my story, I think, goes way back to when I was a, a kid and my parents every summer would take me and my sister uh, out to, you know, some exotic or uh, interesting destination, often a national park. Uh, when we were really little, we started, you know, closer by. So I grew up on the East Coast and we would go you know, up to, to Maine, to like Acadia National Park or the, the Great Smoky Mountains um, down in Tennessee, North Carolina. Eventually, you know, making longer trips out west to the Rockies, California, Pacific Northwest. Uh, we went to Alaska uh, when I was a, a teenager. So I had this really nice uh, exposure to natural environments, national parks, uh, these really iconic ecosystems around the world. And I think that definitely inspired me to kind of go down the route of uh, biology and environmental science. Um, and then when I was in high school, I had a really unique opportunity to go to the U.S. Virgin Islands with the AP biology class. Uh, and they had a history of going to the Virgin Islands and working on counting uh, reef animals. There was a hurricane in 1989 and after that hurricane, the, the classes would go down every year and kind of monitor the, the resilience and the recovery of the, the reef uh, from that, that hurricane. And they, they kept doing that, that class and that trip for, for many years after. So it was nice to see that somebody from kind of rural Pennsylvania could have the chance to go and experience that really amazing environment and think about, you know, at that time, Climate change was not as much in the forefront, but you know we were already thinking about disturbance and you know the human impacts on the environment. 
and then then I went yeah went to college and majored in biology. At that point, did undergraduate research, kind of developed the plans for research and the interests that I that I have now, and went to graduate school and ecosystem ecology, um, and so that that kind of is where the story ends or where it, where it leads to. Well, that's a that's a beautiful story that um, you know these out of school um, you know trips and um, events kind of um, guided you towards you know what you really like to do and 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 um, love. I I think about that too during the summer for my kids and, and, you know, also other people that it's kind of a different way of learning, a more free one. And uh, I think that kind of allows kids more to like discover what they like to do. Um, uh, it's really interesting. So yeah, that's wonderful that um, you had these opportunities and, um, and that led to this, in the end, to this research and could you guide us a little bit um, to that, like how you came to work on this um, uh, project that we are talking about today? And maybe if there's kind of a peek behind the curtain, was it easy to get funding for this? Um, or was it really hard or, you know, and to collaborate with people. Um, if you, any kind of background story you could give us, that would be really interesting. Thank you. Sure, yeah. And you know, just to say the, the topic that we're talking about today is the impact of drought on microbes in soil and the resulting effects on carbon storage in soil, which is really an important topic today with climate change altering so much of our environment and drought uh, being a part of that climate change, especially here in California, where I'm based right now. <clears throat> and we're really interested or concerned, I guess, in some ways about how climate change is going to affect all these aspects of our environment uh, and our landscapes, you know, ranging from the, the plants that grow there to the microbes and microbiomes that live in the soil that we may not see, but play these really important roles in our ecosystems. So that's that's the topic of the paper, and we can get into that in more detail later. Uh, but that line of research has been inspired uh, by the need to understand these these responses, the need to know, you know, what's going to happen in the future. How can we use scientific research, um, mathematical models, you know, people's lived experiences, uh, our our next generation of students, you know, how can we all come together to address these really important questions about what our world is going to look like in the future so that we can make good decisions about how we can you know use energy and avoid climate change or deal with or adapt to the impacts so there's kind of a broader context there uh, the the work that's recently published is an outcome of research that's been funded by the department of energy and the national science foundation and we've been working on questions about drought, uh, climate change, and microbes in the soil since probably 2010. And a lot of that's been locally based here in California, but we have a recent project 
uh, with collaborators from Michigan State and uh, North Carolina State University. That's uh, Sarah Evans and Christine Hawks. And that, uh, that study actually is global. So we are collaborating with teams around the world who are asking similar questions. How does drought affect ecosystems? How does it affect soils and microbes? <clears throat> and they've actually sent us samples from around the world. We're analyzing those and doing measurements, um, testing the, the resilience of the microbes in, in soils that have been exposed to experimental drought and those that have not and doing comparisons so that you know there's a whole experimental context and you know i try to synthesize that information that we've learned over those past decades and with our current project and come up with a, a hypothesis or uh, some ideas about how microbes might uh, change the carbon cycle in soil as they experience drought so it's a it's a an outcome of a a synthesis of a longer term, larger body of, of work. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, also, um, that kind of, in general, we hear now more um, public or read more publications that are um, investigating microbes in general. So um, it's really interesting that it happens kind of kind of at the same time and on all kind of organisms and environments like ourselves as an environment and mm -hmm. um, also in the soil um, and now under different conditions. We had last year a speaker talking about um, after super heat fires, like not just a general fire, but before and after um, this very severe fires in California um, and he, he shared the research and you so did it need kind of um, a basic knowledge before from all these different fields that this could you know um, turn into reality this research or is it just do you think coincidence or was some technology development that maybe became cheap enough that kind of is enabling all this research? What do you think? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a lot of stars that have aligned to make it possible to uncover what was originally called the microbial black box, you know, almost from an engineering standpoint that you know, there's some process or machine that is contained within a black box. We don't know how it works exactly. We, we know it's important. Things go into the box, things come out of the box, but we don't know what's going on inside. And so that was sort of microbial ecology and uh, environmental change impacts on microbes 20 years ago. But since then, you know, we had the Human Genome Project. We had massive advances in sequencing technology. So we have the capacity now to very, very cheaply and quickly sequence uh, trillions of DNA sequences or the letters of the DNA sequence. And that's really revolutionized pr pretty much all of biology, but especially uh, microbial ecology. Because before we were dependent on, you know, isolating microbes from the environment or culturing them in the laboratory. 
uh, looking at them under microscopes. And all those techniques are important, but they, they have challenges and they don't have a whole lot of resolution and we can't see everything inside that black box. So the, the sequencing revolution and associated technologies, you know, for DNA um, synthesis, making primers for the bioinformatics, uh, the computational analysis that we do after acquiring, you know, billions and billions of sequences, you know, all that's made it possible to do ecology at a much larger scale uh, with microbes, even though they're small scale, we can, you know, ask questions about the global distribution of microbes based on the presence of their sequences. And we can go beyond sequencing now. And I think, you know, there's been this revolution in sequencing. And so people basically sequence the heck out of the environment, you know, between 2005 and 2020, you know, in, in the past years, we're still doing it. But now there's also interest in going beyond that using other advanced molecular techniques, um, mostly which have had a biomedical origin, but techniques like transcriptomics, metabolomics, proteomics, um, interactomics. So basically looking at all of the levels of the, the biological hierarchy from genes to uh, RNA to proteins to metabolites and the functioning. And so we can combine all of that technological power to ask questions about how does climate change or how does drought affect a microbial community, an entire microbiome at all of those levels. And so one of the things I tried to do in that article that was published recently is to synthesize how microbes uh, respond to drought with all those different mechanisms from, from their genes to their, their metabolism and, and also how they might evolve and which is an area of active research. We don't know the answer to that yet, um, but with these techniques, I think we'll be able to get some answers, you know, in the next few years. And we suspect, I suspect that microbes are evolving all the time and they're evolving everywhere. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, they're going to be resilient to these environmental shocks. So you mentioned the wildfire before, um, you know, that's another key impact of climate change, so droughts and fires, floods, things like that. Uh, there are all these ways, including evolution, that, that microbiomes can respond to those, those shocks and those perturbations. They've been doing it for billions of years, literally. So we should expect that they're going to keep doing that. Yeah, thank you for um, that um, yeah, overview. And um, yeah, I totally agree with you. So, um, so going now uh, into your um, paper and the, you know, the recent publication, what was then the main finding of, um, of your study? The main result there is that we have to be aware of the balance between microbial responses, microbiomes, and plants, um, because we have to understand how that balance might change with climate impacts like drought. So I want to start out by saying microbes are good, uh, especially those that live out in the environment. Uh, on the whole, microbes and the, the communities or microbiomes that they live in are critically essential for our well-being, for the well-being of the entire planet and all of its great cycles and uh, processes. 
we couldn't live without microbes, especially microbes in soil. So I don't want to throw microbes under the bus. <laughs> um, but the conclusion of the paper is that we have to be aware that those beneficial microbes are you know, living in a balance with other parts of the environment, including the plants, including the climate. And so, as I just described, if microbes are extremely adaptable and resilient and well-equipped biologically to cope with something like drought, then they may be able to maintain their functions, uh, their benefits to the system, uh, despite these, these climate problems. And usually that would be good, right? Because microbes are involved in um, helping, helping plants grow. They're involved in releasing nutrients in soils, um, you know, for our, our gut health, you know, they play an important role. So microbes do all these really important beneficial things. But one of the things that they, they also do is to release carbon back to the atmosphere. So if we think about the, the carbon cycle broadly, you have carbon coming in to an ecosystem or to a soil through photosynthesis and plant growth. <clears throat> so that's how carbon enters. And then it sticks around in the soil for some period of time. And then the other part of the cycle is that the, the microbes, the ones that live in soil, uh, consume that plant material after the plants die usually, and they release it back to the atmosphere ultimately as, as carbon dioxide. And then plants, they do photosynthesis, they take up that carbon dioxide and the cycle is completed. So in sort of a unimpacted world without climate change, the amount of carbon coming into a soil is about equal to the amount going out. And the amount of carbon that stays in the soil uh, is fairly stable. A lot of the carbon in soils can be thousands of years old, so it's been around for a while. And yeah, we want to keep it there. <laughs> uh, that's that's carbon that is contributing to climate mitigation, and it's also contributing to soil health, maybe uh, plant growth and crop growth. So if we tip the balance towards the the microbes, you know, say if a drought um, reduces the the growth of plants dramatically, but the microbes continue doing what they're doing, then we might push that balance towards losing carbon from soil. And that's the concern that I raise in the paper. Um, you know, we, we, we wouldn't want to live without the microbes in soil. We need their, their functioning in order to keep that cycle going. But if we change the, the balance in that cycle, that, that could result in an unexpected loss of carbon from soil and make more of the world look like, you know, a desert soil or some other arid environment where we don't see as much carbon that persists in the soil. Yeah, I, I thank you for um, sharing that. And um, yeah, I think this is um, so important, this research. And, um, and so, how do you then think that, you know, the climate change we are observing um, that is not going away <laughs> anytime soon um, is affecting the, the impact on the microbes and then the soils um, for, you know, and then did you study this um, can you make predictions also for different kind of soil types in the future? Thank you. 
Yeah, of course. So that that's a really important point. Um, we expect that different soils, especially in climates that have a wide range of uh, different rainfall, are going to respond to a drought differently, right? So here in California, we have a drought pretty much every summer. Um, we have a lot of variation from year to year in rainfall. So this past winter, for example, you probably saw on the national news that there was you know, tremendous snowfall in the mountains, even here in Southern California. Um, we had a lot of rain, we had flooding. The Central Valley is like starting to fill up with an ancient lake. <laughs> um, so this year was a really, really wet year. Um, in contrast, if you look back to 2012 to 2015, we had a, uh, historically severe drought, uh, well below average rainfall for three or four years. And that, um, you know, is really exemplifying the, the variation in climate that we see. And a lot of that was probably just natural variation. Climate change adds to the extremes, but, you know, California has just got a naturally variable climate. And so in systems like that, that encounter drought fairly frequently, um, maybe the you know the balance is not as easy to tip we might see you know those systems the microbes and maybe the plants as well can can tolerate those climate shocks better but you know i would worry about uh places that are wetter so for example the amazon basin there's been discussion amongst earth system scientists that we could uh because the amazon is so large that it generates its own weather and has its own water cycle that if climate change <clears throat> dries out the Amazon enough, that trees start dying, that that's going to, you know, trigger a vicious cycle of, of more tree death, uh, lower precipitation, lower rainfall, and um, declining stocks of carbon, both in the plants above ground and maybe also in the soils, you know, as the, the microbes continue to release carbon from, from soil. So in that case, you know, in a wet environment that's not accustomed to drought, uh, you might you might see actually see bigger impacts and um, greater losses of, of soil carbon. And there are ways that we can you know use data on the climate records, the types of plants that are present, the microbial communities, and you know, put those variables into a mathematical model, and then maybe make some predictions. So that's that's how you deal with the dependence of results on specific places or specific environments you know you just need to to capture all that variation with a with a global model and so a lot of our work these days is thinking about making that connection you know so understanding the local context understanding the principles or rules that, that guide the uh, micro microbial process in that place and then using a mathematical model to extend that uh, to a, a much larger scale. Yeah, um, it's really interesting, um, you know, to think of um, these different environments. I haven't thought, I, you know, when you hear about that, you think more of where, where droughts occur very often. But yeah, if you think of a place that has a very constant climate for a long a prolonged time there you know these insoles will make the biggest change and um 
how do you think then um, these the systems adapt and and why why do you think or how will it change basically the environment and then then also carbon capture do you think that that change will stay or do you think the microbes that are there for that capture more carbon will bounce back or do you think it will just you know from studying maybe different type of climates do you think they have naturally the ability to bounce back or do you think it will stay that way and we as humans have to kind of um, help them out with you know bioengineering thank you mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah that's a great question I think that we don't fully know yet, and that's an area of active research, because the you know the, there's the balance I mentioned before between plants that that add new carbon to the soil and and some microbes that then consume that plant carbon and release it, but there are also microbes in the soil that will help to store carbon because they produce you know resistant body parts like cell walls or they produce this uh, slime called extracellular uh, polysaccharides, uh, basically a biofilm. So they, some of them make biofilms to protect themselves from a drought. And then that biofilm can actually help store carbon, can help glue the soil together, make, make it resist erosion. So there are different roles for microbes in the soil. Um, so they're not, they're not necessarily all contributing as much to the loss of carbon. Some of them are contributing to carbon storage and and that is an area of active investigation. So figuring out which microbes in a very complex community in, and in different environments are, are most abundant, which ones respond positively or negatively to drought. And then, you know, trying to, as we were discussing before, scale up those differences to the uh, continent or global level. So that, that's, you know, a lot of the, the active research right now because there is the hope that, that, yeah, maybe in some of these places, the resilient microbes are the ones that help uh, store carbon and that the way this, that they're resilient to drought is by you know, making these slimes or biofilms and um, resistant body parts that, that can then add carbon and, and keep it in the soil longer. Now, another thing that microbes do, which could be really beneficial if they adapt, is that they engage in symbioses with plants. So the plants we think are going to be, and we know that plants are impacted by drought, right? If, if it's too dry, the plants have to close the pores and their leaves and they can't do photosynthesis. But one thing that microbes can do is to help plants acquire water directly. So there are fungi that you know move through the soil and acquire water and may transfer some of that water to the their plant hosts. Uh, there are beneficial bacteria that may grow with plant roots or plant leaves um, that help the, the plant tolerate drought uh, more effectively. They may help the plant get nutrients more efficiently. Um, they may help the plant resist pathogens. So there's lots of ways that microbes help plants and that those ways may, may help the plants also be more resistant or resilient to drought. So we have to figure out, you know, how are all of those different types of microbes, the ones that are symbiotic with plants, the ones that store carbon, the ones that release carbon, 
how are they all changing uh, with with a climate change like drought? And then how do we add that up to look at the, the net impact on on the soil? And you know, th then we can say, is that going to be a long term change? Is it as a short term change? And you know, basically, will they bounce back or not? But I guess the the upshot here is that microbes are going to be fine. That, that somebody's going <laughs> to persist and survive and recover from drought, and it's just a matter of you know which which microbes are they and what are they doing in the environment, and is that good news or or is that a problem for for plants and for for us um, who rely on on microbes for these benefits? Yeah. Um... It's, um, yeah, I'm sure they will be fine, <laughs> just us. <laughs> and we we consist of many, many microbes, so part of us will continue anyways, <laughs> I guess. But, um, and, and then how exactly do you study, um, you know, the microbes in the soil and also then the effects of the environmental changes, if you want to... Um, elaborate a little bit more how you uh, and your team study these. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, we analyze microbes with a range of different techniques from those molecular approaches like DNA sequencing that I was mentioning earlier, all the way to global scale mathematical and computer models. But I think, you know, I'll just elaborate a little bit on some of the, the field techniques, the, the research techniques that we use out in the landscape, because I, I think those are the you know, exciting and, and interesting uh, methods that we're using right now. And they, they give me a chance to get out into the natural environment and, and look at these ecosystems that are actively responding to, to climate change. So here in Southern California, we have uh, a long-term experiment where, where since 2007, We've been simulating drought as well as other changes like nitrogen pollution and even added precipitation. So yeah, manipulating these environmental factors in two of our sort of iconic California ecosystems, uh, grasslands and coastal sage scrub, which is like a, a shrubland. You know, there's, there's bushes, kind of medium-sized bushes around and in those systems, we have a, a gigantic experiment <laughs> that prevents water from hitting these plots uh, that are experiencing drought uh, as a result of that manipulation. In order to do that, uh, we, we watch the weather forecast and when it looks like it's going to rain, especially if it's gonna rain a substantial amount, then we organize a crew of students and researchers to go out and cover these experimental plots with a, a sheet of plastic, which is up on a, a metal frame. And then we prevent the water from entering that plot for that particular storm. And the goal is to exclude about 40% of the rainfall that would naturally occur. And then we have uh, control plots that, that don't receive that manipulation. And like I said, we have plots that receive nitrogen or not, uh, and we have these replicated in the, the shrubland and the grassland. So we can basically tell how is drought going to affect plants, the microbes, the soils, the, the hydrology of these two different 
iconic ecosystems in, in the California landscapes. So that's our, our broad context uh, for understanding the ecological response to drought. And then we do you know, smaller experiments within that larger field experiment. So one of the things that we've done is to take microbes that are that have been living in that that drought treatment for many years and we can move them around we can take microbes that have been living in the the control environment the you know the kind of ambient normal environment and we can move them into the the drought and see how they respond so we've done those kinds of uh, transplant experiments where we take a microbiome adapted to one environment and we put it into a different environment and so you, you might find that familiar if you've heard of the the fecal transplant uh, technique which is a health intervention for people uh, with problems in their their gut microbiome so you can actually re-inoculate their guts with a healthy microbiome and you know see if that improves their their health outcomes <clears throat> so we can basically do a similar approach we can take a microbiome from you know, a drought environment and one from a natural, um, you know, unmanipulated climate environment and then move them around to the other environment and see how they, how they perform. And to look at their performance, we, we measure their DNA sequences so we can see which particular taxonomic groups of microbes, you know, which species essentially are increasing or decreasing in, in their populations with that movement. And we've done studies on their, their RNA. So what, what genes are they actually expressing? And are those genes related to drought response? We've looked at their metabolism, you know, which metabolites are they producing? Are they producing these exopolysaccharides? Are they producing you know, um, compounds that, that help them resist the drought? survive the desiccating hot dry conditions and then we you know compare those those responses across our different uh, drought treatments precipitation amounts and the the two different vegetation types so that's that's basically what what we do here um, and there are other people like I said with this this global scale project that are doing that in other places in the world where they have their own experimental drought simulations, and then they measure the plants and they measure the, the soils or the microbes. And so once we get enough of those studies, then, then I think we'll have a pretty good picture of how the whole planet might respond. Um, although there are still gaps in our knowledge, it's really hard to do a manipulation in a tropical rainforest, for example, because you know you can't block the, the rainfall from the top down the trees are 300 feet tall um so you know, we, we work in a system where we can put a cover over the whole whole plant community because the plants are only you know maybe 10 or 20 feet high at the tallest but that's you know that's the approach we've chosen to use in our in our system and because it's been going on for so long since 2007 you know we now can see in the long run how the plants respond and how the microbes respond. We have started to see evidence that in our system, the carbon stocks in the soil are declining with drought. So the kind of warning that I made in the paper, it does seem to be valid, at least in our, in our system, even though it is, you know, fairly 
experienced with drought, uh, the amount of additional stress we put on that system does seem to to impact the the carbon in the soil. Not not a huge amount yet, but it's it's starting to be noticeable. Yeah, thank you for sharing that um, um, explanation about how you study these. And um, uh, it's really interesting that you have this very controlled environments, basically, um, that um, that can that you can then manipulate how you would like. And um, and yeah i i so is there a lot of you mentioned you know the more data we get from around the world uh, the better we can make the predictions is the rate of data coming and in increasing and you 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 know are people using like technologies like machine learning and so on to integrate all that data um and do you think the models like what is the rate of the models being basically reliable enough that we can really, um, yeah, rely on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And the answer is yes, there's a lot of work in this area and I think it's growing exponentially. You know, there are, you know, more and more junior scientists going into the field of global change, biology, microbial ecology all the time. So we're definitely seeing an explosion of interest and, and data in these fields. And, you know, I'll, credit my funding agencies, the Department of Energy and the National Science Foundation, you know, they've been very active in funding this research, uh, which is great to see. Um, also, you know, agencies like NASA uh, that generate satellite imagery has been really important for scaling up some of these results and integrating with, you know, the responses of plants, for example. So there, there's a lot of investment in this field. Uh, there's even private companies now that are interested and you know so i think there there's a lot of resources going into it you know we still have a big challenge though with what to do with all the data and you mentioned machine learning and ai techniques and those are definitely coming online um, there's a lot of interest in that and there's a lot of opportunity to borrow from the uh, machine learning disciplines to to answer some of these questions and to really mine the data, the large data sets for patterns. At the same time, I think there's a disciplinary gap here. And you know, people who are trained in field ecology are probably not the ones who are like up on, you know, random forests or neural networks or whatever the the techniques are in machine learning. And so we have we have a, a lot of work to do in scaling and and talking across disciplines where we can get the the people who understand the the biology of the system integrated with the people who can you know, write the code uh, to, to mine the data and to do that with the right ecological questions in mind. So I think we kind of have a, a challenge or a bottleneck now where there's so much data and there's so much promise in, in machine learning, but we haven't really put them all together yet. And, and then there's another sort of knowledge gap between those techniques and the computer models. So our simulations of the future state of the planet and the climate. And you know, that's an area also that's received quite a bit of investment, um, but it's just, it's a huge challenge. We need more investment there. Um, and yeah, I think, I think probably our investment in you know, sequencing and generating data 
at the scale of you know individual landscapes or oceans or bodies of water like that's pretty good um, but we need some more investment in integrating that data and generating a kind of flow of information from those data sets you know through machine learning techniques through mathematical models and into our predictions that ultimately are used by society used by decision makers and i think we kind of are missing some investment at that that higher level yeah i i i know where you're coming from because a collaboration i worked in for um you know doing more genomic and sequencing and epigenetic sequencing of different type of neurons in the brain under different um, health conditions we couldn't find people that were willing to pay to take the pay that nih give for doing data science and 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 prediction because good people they get I don't know, four times the money from a financial uh, company or something like that. So it's really hard unless you wave with the visa. But that was almost impossible during COVID times. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, don't, I think there's also this problem, right, that um, people, especially in this field of data science, just um, you know, we can't compete with the payments they are used to, I, I would say, unless, yeah, as I said, you can um, help people get a green card in the future in the US. <laughs> but <clears throat> I don't know if you see that also very practical um, issue, which I think might be short term because of the improvements and developments of non-coding technologies, including AIs like ChatGTP, that will maybe um, improve that situation because we won't maybe need uh, actual humans, so many at least, to do the actual work of programming and so on. We will need maybe one person to check the work. Uh, what do you think? Do you think this technologies hold promise? for um for research yeah i think they do maybe not in the way exactly that you're describing you know just because i think the machine learning models like chat gpt have to be trained and you know i can see why you you can train them very well to to replicate certain tasks or to perform certain tasks but i i wonder or i question if they you know can really be that useful in in replacing the the, the thought process of un unpacking a complex adaptive system like like the coupled climate earth system and biological systems so i think there's ways to use them and like you said maybe for generating code um you know when there's when there is a, a scientific concept or a hypothesis um that you, know, you can have the bot write the code as long as you can specify what you want very clearly, um, and you know, I think that that's that's going to make some knowledge more accessible. It's going to make it maybe easier for people to engage with each other. Um, but I don't I don't think we're at a point yet where AI is going to be able to 
replace our scientific ability to sort of pose the questions and and look at the analysis of a very complex systems which we don't we've, we don't understand them well enough to train an ai to to get an answer i guess is what i'm saying that you know the ai works really well when we we have like a repetitive task um or like a computational task that there's a, a good uh, training data set available right like a, like a code base for assistive models yeah a machine could easily parse all that and probably help with the coding and that that would be valuable because these these larger scale models our predictive models are pretty impenetrable for somebody who's not a real technical expert in that field so if ai could help us overcome that that barrier that would be that would be really helpful but i still think we would need to invest more in the next generation to apply those ai tools and you know really be thinking about you know what's what's the right area to allocate our effort you know what is the overall conceptual model of how the the planet works and you know how how everything from microbes to to plants animals and people interact um, in the context of climate change so i think there's still some challenges there but yeah the ai could be could be really helpful yeah um another idea that you know some people pursue is to open it up like for the general public and see what comes out of it like you know there are coders out there that in their free time like to work on challenges like this in kind of a gamified way maybe is there are there people doing that maybe to put you know stuff out there and asked the general public can you help us out and then you will mention be mentioned in the paper or something i don't know if you if you know that um what's the name the drop the pitch drop where everyone looked at the video when the actual drop will happen in australia you know mm. that you know there were in history like projects like this because the guy that was doing that experiment that drop takes like decades to drop and every time the few times that thing dropped in his life he was always staring at it but whenever it dropped he wasn't there so <laughs> that's how he then opened it up he had the webcam and everyone around the world could watch it drop and then um yeah and then the person that was online was then mentioned in the paper but uh, you know but there are more examples like this like is there maybe an approach or do you think that wouldn't be worth the effort what what would come out of it yeah i don't i don't know i mean i think there's definitely a place for that kind of uh, crowdsourcing of of science um again because of the complexity and technicality and uncertainty of you know, the, the coupled climate earth system. I don't know that that's the place I would start. Um, you know, maybe, maybe with like parsing <clears throat> patterns in molecular data sets, or if you had a very specific question, I could see that, that being a, a useful approach. But I, I think, you know, where, where I want to see more investment is, is in training the next generation, right? From everything from the, the graduate student level, you know, which is more technical training in, in science and interdisciplinary skills, all the way to, you know, engaging with the communities who are impacted by climate change and, you know, may have their own questions and concerns that we're not 
necessarily addressing right now. Um, and, you know, that if we could get more of the public behind us and, you know, supportive of making these investments or actually participating <clears throat> in the research process, like I think what your, your broader point would be that, you know, how can we involve people, real people, everyday people in uh, tackling this problem? And I think there's a lot of ways that we can do that. Uh, one of the areas that I've been interested in increasingly lately is, is engaging with communities, um, you know, often those that don't have historically much of a voice in the design of science or research and trying to engage them um, as as thinkers, right? Not not as just recipients of our knowledge that we've created in the ivory tower, but as people who have lived experiences um, with the, especially the impacts of climate change or the impacts of, you know, health outcomes that relate to, to microbes and asking them, you know, what do you think? What, what do you, what is important to you? What are your needs? And, you know, how can we together design a question or design a research project? And then, you know, they kind of participate in that process throughout. And then they're co-authors on the, the paper because they, you know, they were the ones who served like as the, the principal investigators. So I think that there's, there's good reason to make those kinds of investments and think about, well, you know, how can we broaden the inclusion of people in the scientific enterprise in ways that we haven't really tried to do late, uh, recently or historically. Yeah, that's really wonderful that you do that. And I've seen a, a really positive kind of start this maybe to hopefully become a trend um, for people to do that, for researchers to do that. We had um, um, uh, ancestry, basically research team that um, here that um, basically gave back identity to um, former um, slaves uh, cemeteries. And mm -hmm. they actively really involved um, the public or the the descendants um, in those areas. It's North Carolina and South Carolina, and so um, which was really wonderful. And they did this naming ceremonies, and they really just did the research that um, that people wanted them to do on on the remains. So. It was a that came to be a really wonderful and very well um, received uh, research project, and I think that's so important um, that you do that because I think a lot of things we we wouldn't think of that would that is really important to improve people's lives, also in clinical studies to more actively ask people what do you need to be solved from us and addressed and like to to have this very practical approach so yeah congratulations for doing that that's really wonderful and um what what is basically the future for your research if you could give us like a peek into the future what you're working on now um thank you yeah, we're, we have a lot of exciting work going on uh, in this in this area. Um, one area for the microbial scale is really trying to 
leverage all of that molecular data, you know, all the all the sequences we have around the world, or even from our own studies, because um, there's so much embodied knowledge there and potentially answers to important questions. And we just we just have to invest in the people and the time to extract that information. So we're putting together a team to look at genomic data, you know, from environmental samples and from uh, isolated strains of microbes, you know, lab isolates, and basically putting all that information to a giant database and then running computational pipelines to extract useful information <laughs> from that. And then we kind of pass that along up, up in scale, you know, so we go from a microbiome or a set of genomes to uh, our experimental plots, maybe in the, the field site, and then pass that information along in a, in a mathematical way to, to make a prediction about the, the response to, to drought or to different moisture levels. And then we can pass that information along to a ecosystem or earth system scale, a global scale model. So we're really focused now on taking the information we have in molecular and other um, small scale data sets and scaling that up, parsing it out into useful information that helps us improve our predictions. So that, that's one area of interest. Um, another area is really focused at the global scale and thinking about you know, what are the, the tipping points in the climate system that relate to microbes and soil carbon? You know, are we, are we missing some potential um, you know, danger <laughs> in terms of uh, climate feedbacks or losses of, of carbon? You know, I mentioned the Amazon basin before, so is that something we need to pay closer attention to? You know, this, this recent article on drought and its impacts on, on soil carbon, uh, there are issues potentially with warming in the, the high latitudes in the Arctic, you know, is that going to melt permafrost? Is that going to change our microbial balance uh, up in those places that store about a third of the, the world's uh, soil carbon? And so I'm involved with a team that's going to be looking at that and, and revising our earth system models to account for some of those potential tipping points or danger zones um, in the future. And then, yeah, another area that I'm excited about is we were just talking about is related to engaging uh, communities, especially those that have been historically excluded from our, our scientific process and, and trying to build research justice principles into, into our science and recognizing the, the scholars you know, out there in, in the social sciences and humanities and uh, in our own scientific fields who are already trying to do this and you know kind of giving them the the resources and networks to to boost that that pursuit and to engage with their communities to do this you know co-design process where we're, we're trying to be more inclusive about who is in charge of the research enterprise so it's not just academics you know and not just federally funded researchers but that that everyone um, especially those who are most impacted by climate change can can have a say and play a role in addressing the problem. Yeah, that um, that is all really important work. And do you think or do you think 
politicians and you know lawmakers people that can actually implement regulations are they listening more to studies like this is that improving or is there still a long way to go because we probably don't have a long time i i know um we had a researcher here that um, looks into zooplankton and so on in the ocean and he said that they had kind of a um, recent win that um, internationally there were now regulations to protect the ocean and different regions of the ocean to make basically larger natural preserves in the ocean and that was kind of a win um, for them um, that their research kind of contributed to that so are things like this happening or is that still too new and you know politicians are not aware yet of of these kind of implications because we need to recalculate basically our carbon release and models probably and and then regulation how much we have to cut and even do other carbon capture approach or use other carbon capture approaches? Yeah, I think there is a lot of progress there. Um, I, I think that you know, even nationally and, and globally, which is the most challenging scale to develop policy, we've seen a shift towards, you know, even conservatives or people who have historically been resistant to, to climate action um i think at least accepting that there's a problem accepting that you know that there's a scientific consensus and now the debate is more about you know what what is the appropriate response what are the appropriate solutions um, and how much are they going to cost and who's going to be responsible for those so i think that there has been some progress there in that you know now we are a little bit more focused on the policy questions i don't personally think the policy movement at the national scale is 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 fast enough and most scientists would agree that you know the problem is urgent and we're not you know reacting quickly enough to deal with that urgency but that's where i lately have been looking more at the local levels or regional levels so you know living in california california is you know, very advanced in its climate action policy you know there's a lot of um you know regulations and investments kind of embedded in the bureaucracy of California, which is a giant economy and a, you know, our, our largest uh, state economy in, in the country. Um, so there the challenge is really like doing it efficiently and showing how we can, you know, use California as a test bed and an exemplar for effective climate policy. Because like we have the we have the political will to do things here. It's just you know, making them effective is still a challenge. Um, but, you know, it, it is nice as an academic in my privileged position, I have access to talk with policymakers, you know, members of Congress, um, the Orange County supervisors, the, my colleague is, was elected to the city council in Irvine um, in 2022. So, you know, we do have that opportunity, I think, uh, for, for scientists to engage with policymakers directly. And, and that's something that we have to work on and be cautious about, but that it's worth it's worth investing some time and effort in making those connections. And I do think at the local level, you know, for example, here in Irvine, we're putting together what would be Orange County's first climate action adaptation plan for any any city. 
in the county. And you know, that's exciting. Irvine's a big city. It's 330,000 people. Um, it's in Orange County, which you know ha has an interesting political history that was conservative and has shifted to be more moderate now and you know could be a good test bed for some some policies and some action that uh, address climate change and make meaningful contributions to to mitigating uh, greenhouse gas emissions and also like show us how again our communities and uh, societies can be, adapting to the, the change that's already baked in. Yeah, that's that sounds really promising. And, um, you know, Serena is not here, but she usually points out that um, it usually works and gets adapted if it cut costs or make things more efficient and people can also profit from it. So do you think the research into the microbes and um, and maybe, you know, um, resulting bioengineering would hold the possibility for agriculture and different companies that supply um, seed soils and so on to uh, use the research to kind of um, make agriculture more profitable and also um, maybe gardening, you know, in everyday people because, you know, we destroy our microbes in our backyards by spraying it with all kinds of chemicals to make the lawn prettier and so on. Would, do you think your research holds promise for that? So it gets adapted independently also from policymakers and like political environments? Yeah, I think I think that's a good point that there's a lot of potential for private industry to make progress here. Um, you know, there, there's there's different motivations, right? It's there's profit motivations for corporations and agribusiness. Um, there's also, you know, societal challenges, grand challenges and food security and, and climate adaptation. We want to think about um, Ideally, those profit motives align with the, the societal needs. Uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But I think it's definitely true that there are a lot of uh, companies in agricultural industry that are looking at ways to leverage microbes and microbiomes to increase crop yields, to, to increase crop resilience to climate change. Um, some of this is you know, government-funded research, USDA, um, Department of Energy for biofuel crops, et cetera. So yeah, that, that's a huge industry. Um, you know, it's probably going to be in the billions of dollars pretty quickly. Uh, so the challenge there is just to make sure that whatever interventions and technologies are being developed and marketed are actually effective and you're know, not making the climate problem worse. And they're actually, again, achieving these societal goals and, and addressing grand challenges and food security and not just increasing profits for uh, agribusiness. Um, so that, that, that's a, an ongoing challenge, of course, with, with industry. But uh, I think that, you know, the people on, on the scale of their, their urban gardens, like that's also a relevant um, application of this kind of information, right? If we can say to people, oh yeah, you know, you, you don't want to use this type of fertilizer or this type of pesticide or herbicide because it has this impact on the, the microbiomes and the, the wildlife or the, the plants then that's that's useful information 
um, or yeah, maybe there's there's health implications too, right? Like if that's the source of your gut microbiome, you might not want uh, to be using antibiotics in a certain way because you know antibiotic resistance or other concerns like that. So I think there's this interesting nexus between the environmental microbiology now and the human microbiome work uh, that's you know both of those fields have been evolving and rapidly advancing in, in recent years. So I think you know, we can definitely, use this knowledge, you know, like for food security, for profit, for, you know, personal uh, community level benefit as well. So there's, there's lots of ways to, to benefit, I hope. Yeah, um, that sounds, um, that sounds really um, kind of good, hopeful for the future that we can be hopeful for the future. You know, FDA recently approved like this, um, microbiome treatment officially uh, from a company i forgot uh, the name now so yet so do you think we will have these or how long would be would we be away from having this kind of treatments for different type of soils like, do you think we will be there maybe the next five years ten years like how much research do we need let's say you know, you have, um, you're living, I don't know, in the Middle East or you're living in Kansas or wherever and um, you're, you can predict maybe also with better weather predictions, the weather in the next six months will be this way and then you can, <laughs> you can manufacture maybe a cocktail for those conditions to have crop yields that are acceptable because we have this problem currently um, in the US, right? That the crop yields are very, very much lower than expected and a lot of farmers are in trouble right now. I think if they could buy such a thing to make their soil more adaptable in their crops that I, I think they would do that. So. Um, Yet, how long do you think we are away from a very practical application like that? Yeah, as you're talking about precision medicine for our microbiomes in agricultural yeah. fields. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that that's that's a possibility for sure. Um, yeah, I think it's probably still in the the ten to twenty year time scale before it's uh, kind of intervention and having success with that kind of product re really requires a. You know, ecology is a is a again a kind of a complicated and technical field, and we have to really think about how to use that to to practical benefit. And the, the issue is you can't you can't just sprinkle on microbes or communities of microbes um, and expect that you know they're going to have an impact uh, without really understanding the. The limitations and the climate and the soil and the plants, the whole context of that that system. So I think you know we we can do that. It's just that we need to invest more time and effort and research in making predictions and and really understanding the fundamentals of those of those systems, because otherwise it's it's just not going to work, right? Like 
there are, there are microbes floating around in the environment all over the place in the air in water and so they're you know they're kind of always coming in and so if you just try to sprinkle them on in some kind of inoculum or, or product or even like you know you think about the um, probiotics you know there's a lot of debate about like which probiotics are actually effective you know if you put some foreign microbes into your gut what often happens is that the the microbes that are pre-adapted to live there that are already existing they just you know outcompete the ones that are in the pill and so that the similar kind of outcome could happen with with soils or these agricultural uh, <clears throat> product mixes of, of microbes but if we if we know okay well this this type of microbe has this benefit and it requires this particular ecological niche so you know like you said maybe we know that the upcoming season is going to be particularly dry so we know that this microbe or, or cocktail of microbes is, is helpful with uh, dealing with drought then we could strategically uh, apply that but again i think that kind of knowledge and that kind of practice is under development but it's still going to be a little while before we can use it successfully yeah um, yeah, thank you so much. I, I think it would be really wonderful. Are you thinking of, did you get approached by like precision, like a precision medicine companies, you know, there are a few in California um, that are focusing on genetics and so on. Um, are they collaborating with people to also expand into this area? Or are you thinking of uh, funding, like being a founder of a company like this, or is that something you you rather give to other people to develop? Um, yeah, so I I have done a little bit, not much, but a little bit of consulting with um, agribusiness companies. Uh, some of my colleagues are more involved, like you know, actually making startups and such. And so you know, I view my role as an ecologist to make sure you know that they are being responsible <laughs> and to give my input on what i think might work and what might not work and what the the challenges are going to be so that again we're trying to align the industri industry goals with the the societal grand challenges and you know just give them advice on what i think should be um, the priority and what what i think will work or not so I'm not probably myself gonna go out straight away and, and make a startup, but uh, I, I, I am interested and I think it is my uh, job description and responsibility to consult and um, you know help help business as well as other members of society to, to come up with good solutions, equitable solutions, um, solutions that make economic sense. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll try to, be responsible in my relationships with with companies but but that there is definitely a need for that and that i think scientists ecologists should en should engage um, and make sure that we're moving in the right direction in industry as well yeah that's really good so um because i think you know there there's a very important those roles are all very important and sometimes i I at least trust more when those roles are kind of separate. So for example, I would listen maybe more to 
David Sinclair to what he says about aging and what maybe would help then somebody because he stays out of uh, funding a company exactly for the reason so he stays independent and he can just say you know new research now shows this so um so then he can just say um you know i don't support this theory anymore and this kind of vitamins and whatever because new research now shows this and he can do that quite independently so i think that is also really important so we are very curious to uh, follow your research um, and your recommendations in the future because of that and um yeah we've been talking a little bit over an hour so i hope we didn't you know, uh, create some conflict in your schedule. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming here and sharing your really important work. And thank you for doing this work. And um, yeah, as I said, we wish you all the best for the future and we will be following your work. Um, thank you. Thank you again for the invitation. It's great to, to chat here. Yeah, thank you. And thank you everyone for coming also for people in the future for sending in the questions. I hope we answered them. If not, just read out to me. And um, yeah, uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And uh, if you like discussions like this, just check out the calendar. We'll have a bunch more in the summer. We'll have a little bit less, especially in July. And um, But we have some rooms planned even in June. And thank you so much, Stephen, for doing this. And um, I wish you a really great uh, weekend. So, everyone. Thanks. Take care, everybody. And I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.